Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 91, the book of Matthew, chapter 26, the third continuation. In our previous study of Matthew chapter 26, we took a careful look at a rather peculiar ceremony that took place at an unknown location within the city walls of Jerusalem with Jesus and his 12 disciples in attendance. Now it occurred in the first hour or so of Passover, and therefore it happened soon after dark on Nisan the 14th, just after Nisan the 13th ended, remember, as in the Hebrew reckoning of days, it's sunset to sunset. And it is, in Christianity, taken on the name of Last Supper or Lord's Supper. And as we discovered, this could not have been the traditional Passover Seder because that occurs by biblical commandment, 24 hours later, in the first moments that the calendar next turns to Nisan the 15th, when the Feast of Passover ends, and then the first day of unleavened bread begins. Now, the Apostle John, in John chapter 19, makes careful note that the Judeans, meaning residents of the Roman province of Judea, nicknamed that entire day, that entire 24-hour period of the one-day Feast of Passover, they nicknamed it Preparation Day. That is, Passover Day was used by the local residents of Judea as the time to prepare the commemorative Seder meal, but not eat it yet, during which time their Passover lambs would be slaughtered at the temple, and then each family would prepare and cook their slaughtered lamb in one of the many public ovens that were set up all around Jerusalem. And upon sunset of Passover day, when it becomes the first day now of the Feast of Matzah, that's when the prepared meal was eaten. Now, the reason that meal preparation could not continue into the first day of the Feast of Matzah is because both the first and the seventh days of that feast are God-ordained special Sabbath days, so no work can be done. Excuse me. Leviticus 23. Verses 4 through 8. These are the designated times of Adonai, the holy convocations you are to proclaim at their designated times. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, that's Nisan, between sundown and complete darkness comes Passover for Adonai. On the 15th day of the same month is the festival of matzah, unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat matzah. On the first day... Of matzah, you are to have a holy convocation, do not do any kind of ordinary work. 
bring an offering made by fire to Adonai for seven days, and on the seventh day, it's a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. So we've got two Sabbaths added to that stretch of feasts. Now, biblically, the law of Moses does not call for the ceremony that Jesus officiated on the opening hours of Passover. So what was it? By all accounts and educated guesses, seems that this special meal that Christ and his 12 um, celebrated was a strictly man-made traditions that the Galileans created and observed, but Judeans and other Jews did not seem to share in it. I mean, I think we've explored in this and the previous lesson about as far as recorded information, biblical or otherwise, gives us about this ceremony. The important part of this special meal ceremony is this. The eating of the bread as representative of Christ's body and the drinking of the wine as representative of his blood. These were meant symbolically as his disciples identifying with Christ's death. Flesh and blood are human, not divine characteristics. Thus, Yeshua's humanity is the focus. Frankly, from what we have thus far learned, I cannot imagine that the disciples understanding the point of this at all. In fact, I suspect they had to not be only perplexed, but disturbed, since the drinking of blood is forbidden by the Torah, and the eating of human flesh could not have evoked anything less than the idea of cannibalism. Without doubt, exactly what this particular observance meant, which centuries later was formulated into the Catholic Church sacrament called communion, it puzzled Yeshua's Jewish believers for years to come after his death and his resurrection. That is why it fell to Paul three decades later to better explain it in a letter to the Corinthian congregation. That was in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, I want to also remind you of something that it's uncomfortable for us because of what has been said and taught in the church for centuries, and so we take it for granted. Christian academics have for some time acknowledged, usually in an obscure footnote, that in reality, when we read in Matthew's gospel of Christ saying, for this is my blood, which ratifies the new covenant, many and the most ancient of the Greek New Testament manuscripts scripts do not have the word new. Instead, that passage reads, for this is my blood which ratifies the covenant. Now, even the centrist modern traditional scholar Ben Witherington III and his commentary on the same subject, he says this, the word new in verse 28 seems not to have been an original part of our text, 
but is rather a scribal attempt to conform our text, meaning that, that the, the words in Matthew, to Luke chapter 22, verse 20, or to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. In other words, it seems that a later Christian editor added the word new to the verse. Now, I've taken the position that most likely, even if Matthew didn't include the word new in his gospel account, nonetheless, Jesus was probably making reference to the fulfillment of the new covenant, as it's called, that's prophesied by Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31. Therefore, we must be careful not to take the term new covenant too far. When Jeremiah said it, it was not meant as a formal name. New covenant was not a formal name of a new covenantal agreement between God and Israel. That is, we need to understand the term as meaning a covenant that is newer or maybe even renewed. For instance, if we go out and purchase a new car, that car does not acquire the formal name of new car. New is a description of the car. It's not a formal name for it. New is an adjective. It's not a noun. As I've previously explained, this newer covenant was not new in the sense of its substance and its ordinances, but rather it was new, and please catch this, it was new in the sense of how and where it existed and resided. And Jeremiah makes that quite clear if one reads the next couple of verses in that passage. That is, the newer covenant is not the abolition of the older rules and currently existing covenants that are replaced by new rules. A new car does not abolish your old car. All of the covenants God made, all of them, are still intact as a series of covenants not each newer one replacing the previous ones. So, what does this new or newer covenant actually do? According to Jeremiah, it is that the law, which can only mean the covenant of Moses, was now mysteriously placed into our inward parts, into our hearts in Jewish thought as an act of God. <clears throat> With the devotion to it and understanding of it becoming part of our nature. As opposed to it having existed primarily externally, only on stone tablets and sheepskin scrolls as a kind of physical rule book that was held primarily in the possession of the religious leadership. Now, this thought shouldn't at all alarm a Christian. After all, central to Christian belief 
is that the coming uh, event of Pentecost moved the Holy Spirit from existing as external and apart from us to becoming internal within us with the effect that our inward natures were modified. Modified to become more receptive to God and to His commandments. It's my opinion that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the means and it's the vehicle within which the Spirit and the intent of the Law of Moses became transferred from outside of us to inside of us. Now, even though this subject, at least for me, is fascinating and inspiring, we could discuss it for hours, so let's move on now to Jesus returning to the Mount of Olives and the series of prayers that he made to his Father in heaven as this terrible reality of the ordeal he's about to suffer in a few hours, it began to really set in. So I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start reading at verse 30. We're going to go through verse 45. We're going to start reading at verse 30. Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. After singing the Hallel, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Yeshua then said to them, Tonight you will all lose faith in me. As the Tanakh, the Old Testament says, I will strike the shepherd dead, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you into the Galil, to the Galilee. I will never lose faith in you, Kepha, Peter answered, even if everyone else does. And Yeshua said to him, Yes, I tell you that tonight before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. Even if I must die with you, Kepha replied, I'll never disown you. And all the disciples, all the Talmudim said the same thing. Then Yeshua went with his Talmudim, his disciples, to a place called Gachmanim, uh, Gethsemane, and said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Now he took with him Kepha and Zabdai's two sons, and grief and anguish came over him. And he said to them, My heart is so filled with sadness I could die. Remain here. Stay awake with me. Going on a little farther, he fell on his face praying, My father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. And he returned to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Kepha, to Peter, were you so weak you couldn't stay awake with me for even an hour? Stay awake. Pray that you will not be put to the test because the spirit is indeed eager, but human nature is weak. A second time he went off and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot pass away unless I drink it, let what you want to be done. Again he returned and found them sleeping because their eyes were so heavy. Leaving them again, he went off and prayed a third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said, For now, go on sleeping. 
Take your rest. Look, the time has come for the Son of Man to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. The complete Jewish Bible says that after Yeshua and the Twelve finished this special Galilean celebratory meal, they sang the Hallel. Now, the word Hallel does not appear in the Greek manuscripts. Rather, the more literal literal translation of the Greek word used, which is humneo, is to sing a song or sing a hymn. Translating this to Hallel assumes that the group would have sung a traditional Jewish praise or blessing normally used in this spring holiday season, and that seems the most likely. The Hallel consists of passages taken taken from Psalms 113 through 118, and then it's set to music. Now, this praise song seems to have been the traditional closing to this special Galilean observance that we call the Lord's Supper. Next, Yeshua moved himself and his entourage back to the Mount of Olives. Now, in verse 31, Jesus makes a startling prediction. All of his 12 disciples will lose faith in him. He sets this distasteful statement in the context of the fulfillment of a prophecy found in Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13, verse 7, Awake, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, says Adonai, Zebaot. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the young ones. Let's begin by noticing that Yeshua says, tonight you will lose faith in me. This loss of faith is going to happen in only a matter of hours, few hours. It's not going to be some slow fading away. This loss of faith is going to happen suddenly. Yet Messiah tempers this bad news with some good. After he rises from the grave, he'll meet them in the Galilee. In other words, all, not some, of the disciples will fall away from the faith and trust they had in him. However, later, they will regain that faith and then rejoin him back in their home province of Galilee. Now, the implications of what this is saying are enormous not the least being that it makes quick work of the erroneous Christian doctrine among some denominations known as once saved, always saved. One of the major tenets of that doctrine tries to explain away the many warnings in the New Testament about the eternal consequences of a believer disavowing their faith in Christ and it is to say that those who do so were never believers in the first place. They were pretenders. If that's the case, then so were Christ's venerated 12 disciples pretenders. I don't think any of us of any denomination would make such a drastic claim. And while we will revisit this as we get a little further, 
into Matthew 26, I ask you to go forward understanding that no amount of clever spin can take away from the plain reading and understanding of the Greek words that the 12 disciples will renounce their trust in Yeshua. They will cease being believers for a time. Now, I don't, I don't want to get into the semantics of it. They will lose, or better, they will disavow their salvation. However, this principle is immediately expanded upon when we read that despite this nearly unfathomable desertion of their master by the twelve, Jesus will meet up with them again in the Galilee. In other words, this is a story of faith lost and then restored. What a hope that is for us and for our family members and others who at some point have abandoned their faith in Christ. The door to eternal security, if not yet fully closed for them, as long, it just isn't as long as they have breath in their bodies. It is not closed. They can consciously regain that faith if they choose to. Now, clearly, the after I have been raised, that comment Christ made went in one ear and out the other for all the, for all the disciples. Now, I'm not sure what else they could have been thinking that meant other than resurrection from the dead. But that said... It was either that they were so stunned by being told they're about to renounce their faith in him that what he said next simply didn't register or they didn't believe him that he was going to be resurrected. And folks, not believing in the resurrection of Yeshua is the wide open gate into disbelief in him as our Savior. Sadly, a watering down of his resurrection into him not actually having been dead, but only swooning, or not ha- or just still having a detectable heartbeat, still being alive, or some other such thing. It's just that they couldn't notice it, this heartbeat. This is a growing and spreading tenet that Bible scholars are pressing since miracles are not something very many of them believe in any longer. In fact, without Christ's death and resurrection, then our faith that he's atoned for our sins is in vain. To not believe in his death and miraculous resurrection is to have no belief in what he accomplished on our behalf. Now, naturally, the always exuberant Peter is the first to immediately speak up. I'll never lose faith in you, even if all the other disciples do. Peter's bravado will soon be exposed as false. I love Calvin's characterization of it. 
as the intoxication of human self-confidence. Isn't that a great thought? Book could be written around this subject. Now, when we back away and think about this in a larger sense, we must first recognize that Peter is telling Jesus that he's wrong. Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. This warning might apply to everybody else, says Peter, but never to me. Others might be tempted into falling away, never me. My faith in Messiah is so deep and enduring, I have finally passed that point of even being capable of renouncing him. That's what Peter thinks. I'm different than all you other believers. Christian and Messianic leaders, and I'm speaking to you now, it is no small thing that it is Peter expressing this sentiment. Peter's the leader of the disciples. He is second in command only with Christ above him. I have personally met too many leaders of our faith who believe that the temptation to fall has more or less passed them by. That over time they've gained some kind of immunity. This false bravado actually makes them the most vulnerable to it. Statistics show that among believers, it is leadership that is more likely to fall to temptation. In fact, most studies done on the subject say that around 3 in 10 Christian leaders will commit some type of serious moral failure almost always involving improper sexual conduct. Three and ten. Big number. Well, Yeshua immediately pushes back against Peter and tells him that before the cock crows, he's going to disavow Jesus not just once, but three times. The cock crowing simply means daybreak. The reality is that roosters will crow at almost any time. But it's also observed that just as daylight is about to erupt, their eternal, internal clocks will indeed cause them to crow. So it's just an ancient expression of saying, when the cock crows, as meaning the time when the sun is about to light up the horizon. Now, Peter himself, sort of crowing like a proud rooster, responds again. Ah, oh, Jesus, you're wrong. In verse 35, Peter ups the ante. He says that even if he has to die along with his master, he'll never disavow Yeshua. The Greek word used changes to the much stronger term aparneomai. That is, there is no question that the sense of the word in modern English is to disown. It means to fully dissolve whatever relationship had previously existed. 
Matthew tells us that the other disciples also chimed in at this point and agreed with Peter. So now all of them are rebutting Jesus and telling him that he's mistaken. And as we're soon going to see, they will all, to a man, do the opposite of what they just claimed. Well, at least finally, Peter and probably all the all 12 of the disciples have accepted that Jesus is about to die. Resurrection? Apparently not. They still remain blind, not delusional about what lays ahead. Well, what comes next is a power struggle within Yeshua that disquiets many believers. So much so that all manner of explanations by our church authorities to try to dismiss the obvious have been contrived in hopes of regaining some peace about it. However, we're going to face it just as it's written and therefore just as it happened. Verse 36 has Yeshua and the Twelve on the move yet again, but this time not very far. They remained on the Mount of Olives, only relocating to a place, place called Gethsemane. However, that's not what they would have called it. In their Hebrew language, it's Gatshmanim, meaning olive oil press. So wherever they were, it was a well-known, there was a well-known olive oil press present. John in chapter, uh, John John chapter 18 calls this place a garden. And the other gospel accounts, only Mark goes along with Matthew and gives it that same formal name, Gatshamim. Christ tells his disciples that while he goes alone to a uh, kind of a, a quiet nook to pray, there to stay where they are. Now let's pause here. Doesn't sound like much. Let that sink in for a minute. Yeshua, whom the church rightly confesses is divine, goes to pray. Praying inherently involves addressing someone greater than oneself. He prays to whom? In verse 39, this person is identified as my father. This means that Yeshua is God's son and himself divine, is not on an equal status footing as the Father. There is, of course, a divine hierarchy of authority. There is no co-equalness of the Godhead. We certainly never hear of the Father or the Holy Spirit praying to Jesus nor does Jesus ever tell us to pray to anyone except to the Father. So he follows his own instructions. Now that said, verse 36 explains that Yeshua took with him Peter, James, and John. James and John, the sons of Zephdi. Now we see that as time has rolled along, those three have become the innermost of Yeshua's inner circle of friends and followers. 
These are the same three who were there with him at the transfiguration you read about in Matthew chapter 17. Now, apparently, as his most trusted confidants, Yeshua descends into a sorrowful and a painful confession. He says he is so distressed and anxious that he wishes he could die. No doubt I wish I could die is meant in the same way we use it today. It's not meant literally. It simply means that the person has reached the end of their ability to deal with or process something that is grievously dreadful for them. There's no getting around it. Christ is very worried about what is about to happen to him. So while he doesn't want to include the three disciples as part of a, of a prayer ring, he does want them near to him for comfort as he prays to the Father. Now, as I thought about what was happening here, I was kind of flailing around about how to describe what Jesus was going through. I, I, I could not find the right words. However, Psalm 55 solved it for me. I'm going to read to you the opening verses of Psalm 55, a psalm written by Yeshua's ancestor, David. Just hear this, starting at verse 1. For the leader with stringed instruments, a maskil of David. Listen, God, to my prayer. Do not hide yourself from my plea. Pay attention to me and answer me. I am panic-stricken as I make my complaint. I shudder at how the enemy shouts, at how the wicked oppress, for they keep heaping trouble on me and angrily tormenting me. My heart within me is pounding in anguish. The terrors of death press down on me. Fear and trembling overwhelm me. Horror covers me. I said, I wish I had wings like a dove, then I could fly away and be at rest. And as we think about Christ praying, I think this psalm is, is a pretty good characterization of how he must have felt, what was going through his mind. This is actually borne out by the prayer, the recorded prayer, that he raises us up to his father in Matthew 26, 39. It says, going on a little farther, he fell on his face, praying, my father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. I think we can take fell on his face pretty literally. You know, <laughs> kind of interesting. Even the worst sinners, sometimes those who have resisted God all their lives and suddenly realize their end may be at hand, nearly instinctively fall face down on the ground as they plead with God to help them. It's almost like assuming such a lowly position while sending up an urgent plea to the Creator is built into us as humans. Once again, it's Jesus' humanity that's on full display here. In the position of submission, he begins with, My Father, which essentially conforms with the important opening element of the Lord's Prayer of Matthew chapter 6. And then Jesus 
continues with, take this cup from me. What cup is he talking about? See, the usual take is he's asking for the terrible beating and then the painful beyond imagination experience of crucifixion to be taken away. However, in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and in Revelation, and even in the Apocrypha, that's those books that were written during that 400-year period in between the Old and the New Testaments, the term cup is always associated with suffering from God's wrath. Always. It can't mean anything other than that here. We know that in his final moments of life, agonizing on that cross, hardly able to breathe, he cries out and wants to know why his father has abandoned him. There is no better definition of God's wrath than to be abandoned by God and to suffer what inherently comes with it. So while no doubt Jesus is stressed out by the agony that he is about to experience, the bigger issue is that he knows that part of that experience is going to be to suffer from his father's wrath. And when we get to that part of the passion narrative, we'll discuss just why that had to be. Now, don't let it fly by you. Don't sugarcoat it. That Yeshua asks the Father to not pour out this wrath upon him and for him to not have to suffer the humilities he's about to. Yeshua asks God if he really has to go through this. And of course, the meaning must include that he'd rather not go through it. And yet somehow, in the midst of this emotional agony, Yeshua remains resolved to go through whatever he must in order to fulfill the Father's will. It must be noted that in the Jewish mind of that day, and even, even until the present, that in response to sincere prayer, God can change his mind. And we see, by the way, a prime example of that and Abraham's pleadings to God about the residents of Sodom. Remember that bargaining session he went through? Now how, as mere humans, do we rationalize what Yeshua is asking the Father for? How do we deal with him, seemingly inquiring if perhaps there isn't another way, maybe even another person, that can bear this horror that he's being asked to do. John of Damascus makes this observation. He says, Jesus' words show that he did in truth possess two wills corresponding to his two natures. Interesting statement. See, it's also interesting that the most orthodox of the Christian faiths have been quite reluctant to accept that Jesus had two natures and thus two wills 
because it would shine too much of a light on his humanity. When what we most want from him is his indomitable divinity. We prefer a strong, courageous, cannot be deterred Yeshua of Nazareth as opposed to one that seems to be on the verge of wilting. The problem is that this is the classic case of reimagining Jesus into the Jesus we want instead of the Jesus that was and is. We have here, and in all gospel accounts, a record of Yeshua and a mammoth struggle between his own human will and the will of God. We're watching it play out. It is not an issue of Yeshua trying to deny or trying to defy his heavenly Father, but rather, you see, it's an issue of him coming to a place in his mind that he finally accepts there's no plan B. There's no other option. And that because the human will is simply not in tune with God's, therefore the struggle will continue. It's an issue of full submission as opposed to trying to find a happier medium. See, Paul understood this dilemma well. And in a passage that I dearly love, to remember and to quote, I suppose because huh, I see myself in it. Paul said this in Romans 17, uh, rather Romans 7, starting in verse 14. For we know that the Torah is of the Spirit, but as for me, I'm bound to the old nature. Sold to sin as a slave. I, I don't understand my own behavior. I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to do, I'm agreeing that the Torah is good, but now it's no longer the real me doing it, but the sin housed inside of me, for I know there is nothing good housed inside of me. That is inside my old nature. I can want what's good, I just can't do it. For I don't do the good I want. Instead, the evil that I don't want, that's what I do. But if I'm doing what the real me doesn't want, it's no longer the real me doing it, but the sin housed inside of me. So I find it to be the rule, a kind of perverse Torah, that although I want to do what's good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner self, I completely agree with God's Torah. But in my various parts, I see a different Torah, a Torah that battles with the Torah in my mind and it makes me a prisoner of sin's Torah, which is operating in all my various parts. What a miserable creature I am. Miserable. Who's going to rescue me from this body bound for death? Thanks be to God, He will. Through Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord. To sum up with my mind, I'm a slave of God's Torah, but with my old nature, I'm a slave of sin's. That's powerful, and it's the truth. It's how we are. It's the condition we're in. 
Paul wasn't Yeshua, and neither are we. Yet we share some similar attributes. Our human nature, as given to us from Adam, is an unfixable, corrupt nature. We will not be purely, fully cured from it till after our death. With faith in Yeshua as our Lord and Savior, with trust and obedience in His Father, that His word to us is true and is our guidebook that reveals His expectations of us in this life, many of the symptoms of our corrupt humanity can be relieved. Nevertheless, that corrupt nature is going to remain alive and well alongside our new God-given, redeemed nature, and the war between them will never abate in this life, and we should not expect it to. It's going to be a frustrating string of battles for us. We'll win some, we'll lose some. For even Yeshua, perfectly lacking in sin, here he was in prayer to his father at Gethsemane, struggling between these two natures. Why? Because he was somehow as human as he was divine. I don't know. Just how it is. Now, although we're not directly told what the answer was from his father, clearly what proceeds says the path wasn't rerouted. Yeshua returns from private prayer to find the disciples asleep, and he chastises them for not being able to stand vigil with him for a relatively short time, about an hour. He accuses them of being weak that is, weak of will. Jesus goes on to say that they need to stay awake and pray for themselves, that they will not succumb to the test that looms. And this because while they have a spirit in them that is eager to do what God wants, their flesh, their human nature, well, that part of them is weak. Thus, here we get the famous proverb of Jesus that has been in use for many centuries. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, this is speaking of our two natures. Now, what test is Yeshua talking about here? No doubt it is the test of them watching their master get arrested knowing what the Romans do to such a person and often to his associates, and them being able to keep their faith in him at the risk of losing their own lives. They have just stated, oh, they're willing to go to their deaths if necessary for Yeshua. And to this claim, Yeshua says, well, then you better get to praying and keep praying if you have any hope of following through, through with that bold promise you just made. We can take Yeshua's instruction to stay awake as a rather general one that we have encountered throughout his many teaching discourses, most recently in the illustration of the ten virgins with the oil lamps that go out to meet the bridegroom. 
See, being alert and prepared heavily involves prayer and leaning on God's word. As the betrayer is about to strike, sleep is out of the question. So while this directive applies to the sleeping disciples on the Peshat level, on the Ramez level, it applies to all of Christ's future followers right up through today as we await his return. We are going to have our faith and trust regularly tested. I cannot let this pass without making a social comment concerning the world as it stands today in the year 2021. Our faith is under attack. Some Christians might not think so because they see no danger to attend church or to their tax exemption for, for any of that being taken away. What they must not be seeing is that Western society and Western governments especially have openly announced that they see Christian and Jewish faith as a threat to their vision of the future. They are demanding through the media and by law that for the social good, we must give in to the trajectory of secularism. And that begins by calling what is evil good and what is good evil. We must see the Bible and its moral principles as a relic. Science is our new God and that we can make different decisions in our time than what the ancient Jews made or were obligated by God to make. You know, as long as we agree to that, we're going to be allowed to function. But function is what? Certainly no longer be as a church devoted to God and to Christ, but rather as a church devoted to just existing in whatever form necessary to continue to exist. How are we going to know right from wrong? If the new Christian mantra is that everyone has their own personal truth, because we each have our own personal Holy Spirit that designs a customized set of commands and morals just for us. What a great thought. And of course, these commands and morals will agree with whatever state and society says they should be. You know, a lesson from history. Every new dictatorial regime that has come into existence from ages past knew and knows one thing for certain, to establish their new order, all remnants of the previous order must be erased. History, traditions, morals, ethics of the past must be replaced by a new set, and that necessarily begins with the elimination of the old and distancing us from any memory of it. Now, when our faith institutions either discourage its members from knowing and following the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and seek to replace such knowledge with man-made doctrines that essentially turn God's word on its head, we have to soundly reject it. Don't be deceived. 
We are being tested right now. If you didn't know it, wake up. <laughs> wake up. If you don't recognize that reality, it can only be because you don't know God's word or you don't trust it. And so you don't know what to look for. You don't know how to judge what it is that you're seeing. Jesus chastised the original 12 disciples for their obliviousness to the imminent threat they faced, telling them they were going to fail the test if they did not wake up to the reality that they indeed were being tested and then to do something. Pray. But to no avail. Yeshua goes again to pray. Pray is the same thing, we're told. Only to come back and find the disciples again, deep in slumber. He goes a third time, same prayer. Finds the disciples asleep when he returns. Why did he go to pray the same thing three times? It was Jewish tradition that to ask for something three times indicated sincerity and earnestness. And we find this sort of pattern in the book of Kings and in the Psalms. We find it in Daniel as he prayed three times per day towards Jerusalem. And thus, three times per day prayer became the Jewish tradition. Soon, when we find Peter disowning Jesus, how many times? Three times. Then any Jew reading Matthew's gospel would understand this means <laughs> Peter's very sincere. He's very earnest in his renouncement of Christ. That is exactly how we're to understand it, you see. Peter had multiple opportunities to rethink it. Instead, he doubled down on his renunciation of Jesus. So after this third prayer, we hear Jesus say in verse 45, Then he came to the Talmudim, his disciples, and said, For now, go on sleeping, take your rest. Look, the time has come for the Son of Man to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. See, this is a sarcastic remark from a disappointed and disgusted Yeshua. It says something like this. Well, I warned you, but here you are sleeping again. Sure hope you enjoyed your sleep, because now the time is over to prepare yourself for the test that's just moments away. I've told you what's going to happen. I've warned you of the consequences, but you've ignored it. Now it's too late because the betrayer has arrived and the events underway are going to have an inevitable ending. You're going to fail. I mean, can you hear the Lord saying that to us in the 21st century? It's the same deal. Sure hope you're enjoying your sleep. Because events are underway thanks to your laxity and disinterest and general faithless, faithlessness. The betrayer, the devil, well, he's here. For now, he's winning. He's corrupted even the institutions that were supposed to represent God on earth. 
the gate is now flung wide open for the Antichrist to work as evil, likely with worldwide cooperation, including that of influential portions of church and synagogue. Yeshua again calls himself the Son of Man. It is a title not of his humanity this time, but of his divinity. He is saying that he is God's offspring and agent is about to be horribly despised, mistreated, and ultimately killed, not because the Romans are angling for it, but because the Jewish religious leadership desperately wants it. Let's read just a little bit more, just five, five more verses. Starting at Matthew 26, verse 46. Get up, let's go, here comes my betrayer. And while Yeshua was still speaking, Judah, it's actually Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a large crowd carrying swords and clubs from the head priest and the elders of the people. The betrayer had arranged to give them a signal. The man I kiss is the one you want, grab him. He went straight up to Yeshua and said, Shalom, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Yeshua said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they moved forward and laid hold of Yeshua and arrested him. So after arousing his sleepy-eyed disciples, Jesus says to the betrayer, Judas, that he's arrived. And Judas walks up to, the, to Jesus, and he kisses him, which was the designated single, signal for the cohort of soldiers that this was the man they'd been seeking. Now, apparently the troops, and maybe not even the high priest, knew what Yeshua looked like. Certainly didn't know where he was camping out. There was no outstanding feature about Yeshua that made him easy to identify. Not even the presence of his 12 disciples really gave him away. No doubt there were scores, if not hundreds, of rabbis and teachers and their flocks waltzing around Jerusalem for these holy days. And the dress of the peasant Jews was pretty similar. Trying to find Yeshua was something like the needle in the haystack metaphor. Judas provided the solution for the temple and synagogue leaders. You know, it's kind of hard to overlook that Judas was hand-selected by Christ as one of the original 12. Never until they all reached Jerusalem do we hear of anything against him or any shenanigans by him. Now here again, Orthodox Christianity often tends to play this down by saying that Judas was never sincerely part of the group. He was a pretender. Or that Judas was a spy from the beginning. And the idea here that is in no way could Christ have been fooled. By Judas. I think Judas is simply an example of that seed from Yeshua's parable, that seed that falls among rocky soil, such that it starts to grow, but then it eventually withers and dies. In Judas's case, the dead seedling turned 
toxic. Judas's actions indicate a, a rather extreme and rash person who nearly certainly was a member of the zealot party and truly thought for a while that this man from Nazareth was that longed-for Messiah that would form an army and chase Rome from the Holy Land. That is, Judas saw Christ in the wrong light, expecting the wrong things, and when his expectations weren't met, he not only walked away from his faith, he essentially became an adversary. I mean, how many people we've all heard of, if not known personally, that excitedly accepted Christ and for a time came to a church meeting every time the door was opened, volunteered for everything. And when they ran into a personal challenge that wasn't immediately fixed, they lost faith. Then they became a loud and public advocate against Jesus and his followers. I think this is at least somewhat what happened with Judas. Okay, we'll continue with Yeshua's arrest and mock trial next time.